Face to the Wellness for Women show, I'm Jolene Fisher, your host. Every episode of the No Bad Face show will give you a view into the life of another woman, and she will share her stories, her triumphs, the struggles, and the lessons she's learned along the way. And my goal as your host is to bring you topics and women that are relevant to all of us and encouraging to us as well, because I want you to be the hero of your own story. And this is why I introduce you to brave women who do hard things or have done hard things, continuing to plow through and uh, pave a path for others. And they are truly living out that No Bad Days motto. And Kelly is one of those people that truly lives out that No Bad Days motto. She is, as the introduction said when I posted it in this group earlier, she's happy, joy, joyous, and free. And so Kelly is my best friend. We grew up together. In fact, I was nine months old when she was born, and our parents were best friends and hung out together all throughout high school. And when we went off to college, we uh, still stayed close. And so let's talk about a period of her life, which was part of her story today, where we drifted a little bit and why that was. And I'm so happy to have Kelly in my life as we always have, but to um, continue on this path together as women that love to help others. And we both have a passion for that. So I'm excited to have her on the show today because not only is she my best friend, she is an amazing woman who is here to talk to you tonight about her struggles with addiction and recovery and the life struggles that she's had throughout that path, but also has an important message tonight for parents and to just educate us on some things that we don't quite understand or know about the current uh, drug epidemic that's going on here in the, basically in the world, not just the United States. So, okay. <laughs> Welcome, Kelly. Hi, Jojo. Hi. Hi. Well, why don't we start off with you giving us a little bit of background into who you are and where you came from and, and really um, some background. Just start with that. Okay. So, uh, like you talked about, um, I grew up in Port Orchard with you. So, and I, I think that we were really lucky. I think we had a really blessed childhood. I an only child, but my dad and your dad went to high school together. And so, from you like to say you've known me since before I was born, and that's the truth. So I was never alone. I was an only child that was never really only. Um, and so we had a really, really good childhood. I was, I was fortunate in that way. And I think that, I think growing up in Port Orchard, although I couldn't wait to get out, you know, I couldn't wait to get out of there and live a different life. I wanted to get out of a small town. I think that it gave us a really good foundation. I have really good friendships and I'm grateful for it. And there was a really good village around us. You know, your mom, who's listening on this call, is a second parent to me. Your mom and your dad are. And there's not a lot of people that get to say that, that, have a bunch of people in their life that unconditionally love and support them. And that became really important to me um, as in part of my story that we'll get to when it came to me trying to pull myself up out of the gutter. A big thing for, it's not just women, but I'm going to speak to women because I'm a little bit more passionate about women and their recovery. You know, men have male advocates, right? And I am, I work with women also. And uh, the thing if you have a good, strong support system for a woman then and people that have an expectation that you can rise up, that your life is worth more than the way that you're living, and you have a bank recovering. Unfortunately, a lot of people stick into the spiral of the disease of addiction because you lose all hope. And if you don't have that good support system around you of people that know you and believe in you and think of you for who you are, right? Not the person, not the totality of the mistakes that you've made as an addict but the person who you really are and what you're capable of, it becomes that much more difficult to turn your life around. And that's when um, that's, I volunteer with uh, the women's prison here. And uh, that's the reason why, because a lot of the people that I meet through that side of my life didn't have the same resources that I did. You know, they didn't have you, your sister, your mom, your dad, my parents, obviously, my my cousins and aunts and uncles and, and you know, our other girlfriends that we grew up with. I had a group of people around me that knew that, that I could achieve anything I wanted to if I could somehow uh, get clean, get my life straight. So to, to talk about what happened when um, I was 16 years old, 
and I herniated my first disc. And that no doctor knows why. I just have degenerative dis- disease, which is, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it. It's a really nebulous term, you know. kind of makes it seem like your whole spine's crumbling or something in your back. I'm 42 today, and I still have a spine. So <laughs> that wasn't it. Um, but, you know, at 16 years old, for that to herniate for the first time, it was really, really difficult. So for my, my entire life, I mean, I've had 26 years. I've had 26 years of back problems. And I, it adjust, you have to adjust the way that you live. So there's certain you know, there's certain sports you never. I was never going to run. I was never going to be a runner, right? It's terrible for your back. You're never going to lift heavy things, right? Any act too active of sports, you're not really going to do. I don't move my own stuff when I'm moving in and out of my houses. You know, there's limitations on how much I can lift, and that started when I was a really little kid. But for the most part, I was able to manage that because I did get that injury when I was so young. And your body has this miraculous way of healing itself. And so that herniation, after like seven months, that herniation healed. And so for the next, I had, um, let's see, sorry, I was was probably 17 when that got better. And it wasn't until I was in my late 20s actually middle like mid to late 20s that I hurt myself again and I had to start getting epidurals and and all of that now when I was really young they didn't put you on any narcotics um they gave you they gave me ibuprofen and I actually was really judicious about the way that I took that too so I was concerned about you know my liver and kidneys a, a tree hugging hippies from Washington state you know like we care about the stuff that goes in our bodies we do and we even cared about it then and I'm glad yeah. um so I didn't. I really didn't take that much medication. But as the when I got re-injured in my late twenties and early thirties, nothing could get better. And I got it. Um, I got my first MRI done as an adult then, and it was really depressing. You know, like all the discs were just really black and and dead um, and gray. And I had arthrosis and I had stenosis. And I'm a candidate for fusion from um, S1 up to L5. And so. I had to. It was a. I had to find a way to to live with it, um, but with more acute pain than I had in a long time. So the doctors prescribed um, medication then for you know the periodic time, the acute pain, like right first thing in the morning, right when I got out of bed. That's when it would really, really, really hurt. Or um, if I was sitting for too long or laying down, that's when it would hurt me. I could always. I've always been able to get up and walk. Um, so I was doing courses of epidurals. I was doing physical therapy. I continued to stay active, but I was using this pain medication, this pain medication. And like I said, that was like in my late twenties and, um, I used it really responsibly for a very long time. If I responsibly, I mean, I could have a bottle of pain pills in my house and not take them. I could, they could sit there for six months. I didn't care. I used them the way that they were intended to be used. Um, so they worked. They worked for me until one day they didn't. And there were some things going on in my personal life at the time. There were some things happening with my mom. Um, and for the first time in my life, I was I was really concerned about her. And I felt like my life was out of control. So I had a business, and that business was starting to fail. It was during the recession. That was really difficult. Caused, it created tremendous strain on my marriage. Um, it was a huge financial burden. The amount of money that Larry and I lost is... It still, you know, sickens me, right? Uh, and um, and then some things happened with my mom, and that was it was it was hard for me. And so I was using. I meanwhile, I I was seeking treatment. I was getting. I was in the middle of another course of epidurals, and I just started taking the pills regularly at first. And also, by the way, at the same time. The state changed the laws on narcotics distribution. And I know that they did all of this to try to help people. Um, The trouble is, when they changed it, I had to start going to pain management. And that pain management group meant that I was going to get drug tested, and they gave me a 30-day supply. And the drug test meant that you were supposed to have it in your system. They didn't understand at the time everything that they know now about opiates. And I had gone, um, I was really a very diligent patient. I have lost two family members to the 
complications of this disease. Um, both of them had been addicted to pain medication at different times. I went, when I went to my doctors for chronic pain, I told them that I wouldn't be on Oxycontin, that my uncles had a problem with it, all of this stuff. And they prescribed me Percocet. The doctors didn't know, and I didn't know, that Percocet and Oxycontin are the same thing. And in fact, it's much more addictive. It's faster acting form. So I thought that I was doing everything that I needed to do. I was doing my due diligence. I'm not a recreational drug user kind of girl, right? I mean, I can't lie and say it. It was a smoking pot growing up. But, like, I was not a hard drug. That's not, I'm not that type. Um, it wasn't It wasn't in me to try to, I wasn't trying to live life on the edge in that way. Uh, and it snuck up on me. Now, the doctors had prescribed it to me. I thought I was using it the right way. And I realized, this is later on, this is after, after I stopped taking the medication and I detoxed from it and everything. I could see this clearly. During that period of time in my life, I had a tremendous amount of stress. And the thing that opiates do is they attach to your dopamine receptors and you don't feel anymore. You disassociate. And I was in the middle of some things that I didn't want to feel. I still needed to function. So I had to be responsible. I had to run my business. I had to pay my employees. I, I needed to make sure that my mom was going to be okay. I still had a marriage to work out. Right? I had bills to pay. I had errands to run. All of those things to do. So I, I was still, it's not like I could lay in bed and nod off. And the thing about um, the way that my body metabolizes opiates is I get, they give me a tremendous amount of energy. So for me, I was like superwoman. I would take Percocet and go for a four-hour hike. Yeah. Uh, That's incredible, Kel. I didn't know that people metabolize them differently, but now that you say that, that makes sense. Because if I were to do. take a narcotic pain medication, I'd be throwing up and feeling like I needed to go to sleep. Yeah. Well, a lot of people just go to sleep. I mean, I wish I was one of those people. It would have never been a problem for me. And I'm going to talk about that later, too, because there's a, there's other medication that is really dangerous that people should know about uh, for their kids, Right. For their children, for their children's friends, for their grandkids, nieces, nephews, whatever. And for their friends, their adult friends. Yeah. Um, because we do metabolize things. We all metabolize things a lot differently. And I've learned a lot. One of the fellowships that I joined um, after I detoxed was something called Pills Anonymous. And because it, that, I mean, I'll get into the 12-step programs because I think that they're really beneficial. Um and I spend, I volunteer through AA, but my problem, pill problem, that's what landed me where it was, right? I like AA because it's the origin story. That's what all 12 steps are based on, on the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And so it's good to know that program. But I needed to meet other people that had chronic pain, that got off of the medication, and learned how to live with it. I was really scared. And this is, so getting back to the story, I was, you, you start to take it. You take the medication, take more and more. I'm now going to a doctor that's making sure I'm taking it every day. You have it in your system. They will increase your dosage, which they did. I, um, your body then, your brain changes. And uh, they talk about the phantom pain that is created by narcotics. But if you, if you talk to somebody that has chronic pain and you tell them that, they're going to look at you like, you don't know me. You don't know my body. You don't know my pain. You don't know my problem. I'm here to tell you it is totally true. It is totally true. It's amazing that the Aleve and the Tylenol actually worked for me once I got clean. Um, but I was in a tremendous amount of pain. And that's those pills actually create the, the way that your brain reads what's happening. It's reading these triggers as pain. So it feels like, I mean, it felt like one of my discs was, you know, going to pop out, you know, out of my back, right? Like my leg was just going to stop working. I was in this tremendous amount of pain, but it wasn't really it. It was just that my brain was misreading the, the, the signals. So I end up, um, my, my life, I remember for the first time, uh, I was starting, I started a new job. I had to close my business. That was hard. And I closed my business and um, I started a new job and I had, business now. I'm in the construction industry and I've been in the lumber business for a long time. And I'm really good at that. And I, those are my people. I love what I do. But I was feeling kind of defeated. And so 
I had an offer. I had, well, I had a couple offers to go back into that industry, and I didn't want to do it right away. So I tried something different. And I remember this vividly. I went to go start that job. It was the first day. I didn't want to be taking pain medication, so I stopped. That was the first time I ever felt withdrawal. I didn't know I was addicted. I remember calling my doctor at lunch that day, and I said, I still had pain medication at home. So I called my doctor that day, and I said, I think I'm addicted to pain medication. I think, I think I'm going through the withdrawal. It felt like the flu, kind of. I mean, and I was really tired, really, really, really tired. And so you know what my doctor did? He wrote me a prescription for more, for another 240 pills. He didn't want to put up and then told me to titrate down. He didn't want me to have any note in my file saying that I had a dependence upon the narcotics. Wow. So at that point in my disease, I was unable to titrate down. I just couldn't do it. And I'll tell you why. I kept, like each day, you know, you like say you take four a day. So if I got 240 a month, I, I can't even do I'm not too good at the math right now. What is that? 30? There's 30 days. So eight. Whatever. Okay. Yeah. Is that eight a day? Well, so whatever it is. 240 pills a month is what I got. That's 240 a Okay. So you start with eight and you do that for like five days and then you go down to seven and six and five, whatever. Well, what would happen is I get to the titration days and my brain just read the signal and tell me that I needed it. So I was unable to titrate down. And that was a really that was an interesting um, turning point for me. Right. So I had to that point. Just uh, just so we're clear, where you were in the addiction or understanding of addiction, you didn't know you were addicted until you went through that initial withdrawal feeling. Yeah. And then it was in the titration period where you actually said, (laughs) "You you make a decision, right?" Yeah. At that point, I realized I couldn't control it. Mm-hmm. Well, I could because I couldn't control the titration, and I'm really type A. Maybe we should have talked about that before this call. I'm like really type, you know, super type A, really controlling. I set my mind to something, I make it happen. I couldn't fix this. I had no handle over it, and I didn't understand. And so, what happened? You start to tell yourself stories. Your brain. The disease protects itself. That's really the best way to look at it. And so what happened is I started to tell myself that I wasn't in a position yet to get off the pills, that I would have to get off of them later, that I was obviously still in too much pain, that I needed to seek other treatments, right? Not treatment like detox treatment, but other treatment. And um, and because I tried so hard to be responsible and not be on the pain medication in the first place, and to give my doctors all of the information about my family, I felt like I was being a good patient. I wasn't like, I wasn't one of those people, you know? And this is the reason why I really, I, I like telling my story, why I think it's my responsibility to tell my story. I don't think that if you saw me on the streets, you know, anybody that sees this, your friends that don't know me, I don't think if they saw me at your house, I don't think anybody would ever know. I'm not yeah. the girl that you think of as a drug addict. I absolutely right? agree with that. And one thing you put in your bio that I didn't read that I think is important is that you said, this is not a moral failing and really not a choice. That, yeah. And the way you're telling your story is obvious that your body was responding in a way that made it a prison for yeah. you. And you were no longer yeah, able to break free of that without the help. So I'm curious to... Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great word. I I was I was completely trapped. And the thing is, the way that the medications work, and why it's so important for people to educate themselves on how medication affects their body. Um, the way that those medications work is they genuinely trick you into believing that you need it. So by the end of my when I hit like the the end of my disease before I went and got some help. I actually thought, I did not think I was a drug addict, okay? I did not think I had a problem in that way. I was absolutely convinced that I was crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I thought, I remember crying in the kitchen at my mom's house, and I told her that I needed to go 
um, I, I knew I needed to go to a, like a, a mental health hospital. Like I thought I needed to go to a behavioral health hospital. I thought I was losing, I told her I'm losing my mind. Because I have never, I had never experienced, and very few people, unless they've gone through addiction, I had never experienced not wanting to do something, but being unable to stop. And I can't stress that enough. An addict doesn't, you know, we see we have this homeless crisis, right? And I don't want to get too political, but people have to be very realistic about what's happening. This isn't about not having a housing voucher. People don't want to live that way. Now, that being said, they don't want some yuppie walking up to them on the street and giving them, telling them how to live their life either, making choices for them and making it seem like there's a moral failing. But nobody wants to be, have the devil sitting on your shoulder and being in control of your life. And that's really what it is. Addiction is a horrible thing. You have no free agency. And most of us were sober up until some point in our lives, even if an adolescent, you know, even if people start using it 13, 14, 15 years old, those people did experience what free agency feels like. And your addiction takes that away from you. So we have this homeless population and people want to say, oh, we can just get affordable housing. We give them a voucher. We do all these things. No, we need to give them the help so that their brain can recover. You know, this is a brain disease. Mm-hmm. So at the time, I believed that I thought I was crazy. Um, and also, also, by the way, me admitting that is a, my, was a way of my disease protecting itself. I think it's really interesting that it was easier for me to think of myself as crazy. Um, Like, I was ready to go get checked into a behavioral health hospital. I wasn't taking this crazy thing lightly, you know? Right. Uh, Yeah, like, it wasn't like, you know, casually crazy. I mean, I really thought something was wrong. Um, It was... easier for me to digest the thought that I was crazy than it was the idea that I was a drug addict. And where did you get the notion that you were, what changed everything for you that said, oh, I am a drug addict, I need help? What was the turning point for you? Um, so I lost my job, which was a blessing. I got fired for the first time in my life. I'd worked since I was 14 years old. And I got fired for the first time in my life. And what's funny, I got fired for totally unrelated, unrelated issue. I don't know. I don't, it was politics. And I don't know how I didn't screw up my professional reputation. That, I got fired and I had some time on my hands. And I hated the way that I was living. And I knew that if I were to go, because I had... Um, I had two job offers before I got home that day, two job offers on my answering machine uh, before I even managed to make it to the house after being fired. And I knew in that moment intellectually that I couldn't live the way that I was living then. It was really hard. You know, like chasing an addiction is really hard. And um, it would be, Joe, you and I talked about this. It's irresponsible for me to discuss how how many milligrams of Percocet I was taking. But it was a lot. And it, what it means is my whole world, I, I, my whole life, I had to spend so much energy and effort feeding that addiction and making it possible. And I was living in these three to four hour increments. I wasn't raised that way and I had a higher expectation for my life. I isolated away from all my friends and family. You touched on that a little bit at the beginning of this. Because I, what is there to, what is there to say to them? And, um, you know, I talked to you about this last night. That isolation was my way of loving. Not bringing people into my chaos because my world was miserable. My world was absolutely miserable. So you're living in three or four hour increments. You never have any money, right? I didn't eat. I should be, I should have been super skinny. I should have been like heroin chic. It's just not my body type. I never ate. I didn't want to eat before. Because I was afraid I was going to get the pills and they wouldn't hit as much. Then I didn't want to eat after because I had just taken the pills. But I took the pills every four hours, right? So, no time to eat in that. And then I didn't want to sleep because if I took the pills and I was high, I didn't want to miss that by sleeping. It was a nightmare. That world, chasing it. You know, people talk about, like, chasing the dragon. You know, they talk about heroin addiction. Yeah, um, stop you for a second there because this is something we talked about last night. And... 
So you had a doctor at that point who was prescribing you so much per month, and that became not enough at one point. Right. Okay, so can you explain that? Because I think that's an important piece for people to understand how you're chasing down. Yeah, you're chasing. Yeah, I mean, this is where it becomes a a full-blown recreational drug addiction. So you have a drug dealer, and you are spending money on pills. And I was going to talk about, I was actually going to address this a little bit later because this is where fentanyl comes into play in today's, you know, in today's world and why it's so scary, why people need to know what's going on. I was really fortunate that I got, so I've been sober almost six years. I got clean almost six years ago, April Fool's Day. No Yay! joke. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's really good. Yeah. Uh, but I am grateful to God every single day because if, uh, had I not got it when I did, um, fentanyl is a real problem, and I'm really lucky I'm not dead today. I say this a lot. I'm living on borrowed time now. It's amazing that I never OD'd, and I'm not. T- it sounds like I'm saying that lightly. I'm not, but I know exactly what my life was like, and it is amazing that I never OD'd. It's amazing that I'm here today. It's amazing that I don't have any permanent effects, like my liver and kidney. Those those first six months when they're testing you, making sure that like you haven't done any major damage. I was in this. I was in the hospital. I went to detox. I was in the hospital, and they um, they're testing everything. And I thought for sure I was going to have like liver kidney failure. So it's amazing. It's amazing, right? It's God. It's whatever whatever God you want to describe it as. It's God, and there's no way. To uh, there's no way to deny that, but I, I was at the stage of my addiction. No doctor would have given me that amount of, of drugs because it would like take down an elephant. Uh, so I was buying them, and I was having to go see a drug dealer, you know, a few times a day. Uh, I co- of course I made friends with my drug dealer because I make friends with everybody. I'm friends with the people at the grocery store. Friends yes, with you the gas station. <laughs> so I made friends with my drug dealer. And I told him, like, he, he and his wife had a baby, a Bob's new clothes, that kind of stuff. So I went to see him. And I told him that uh, it was time and I was going to go to treatment. I was going to go to detox. And because uh, I had tried detoxing myself a couple of times. I even tried, like, the yuppie, the, I call it the kinder, gentler way of getting sober. I tried the yuppie way. I get paid for this really expensive psychiatrist in Scottsdale with this group and um, suboxone through him and whatever. And it was just a way to like prolong my use. It got a little better for a while, but I mean, I wasn't addressing the problem. Right. So anyway, so I tell I went to my see my drug dealer for the last time, and I told him that I was going to get clean, and he told me because obviously he had a burner. But this was his job. He was a professional. I don't mean to make light of it, but he was a professional. So he would change his phone number all the time. So he told me that while I was in treatment that he was going to change his phone number and that he would never talk to me again. And then he got his Bible and he said, do you mind if I read to you? And he sat down and he read to me from his Bible and he told me he loved me and he gave me a hug and he told me never see me again. Oh, that is crazy, Kelly. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and you guys have to know I was a really good customer. <laughs> I was, I was not the kind of, I wasn't. When you have a small business, if you think of him as a small business owner, when you have a small business like that, and you have a customer like me, twice a day you were visiting him, at least. Yeah. Is yeah, at least. and I'm just naive about this. So educate me on that. Is that because of money? It's money. It's really hard to come up with that much money. I mean, my drug habit was really expensive, really expensive. I mean, and this is one of the reasons I think that you that we've seen that pills became such a pervasive um, problem amongst those people that were upwardly mobile because it it doesn't really feel like it's not a feel like a dirty drug. I I didn't feel like I was, you know, a drug addict. I was buying drugs from a drug dealer and I didn't really feel like a drug addict. Um, because it was, you know, like a, it was what I could get from the doctor. And, uh, now a days you can't find regular Percocet on the street. And it is, um, it is almost entirely all laced with fentanyl and 
like I said, I'm, I'm going to talk about fentanyl in a minute, but that it's very, very important. So, yeah, so you when you have a drug habit like I did, you have to find a drug dealer, and it's really interesting the way that that happens, you know, like water finds its own level. So eventually, like first I found somebody that had a little bit here and there, and then I they introduced me to somebody else that introduced me to somebody else, and before you know it, I was involved. I, you know, you and I grew up in a small town, and although we were very independent, our parents gave us a lot of freedom. We were also pretty protected from a lot of stuff. You know, Portrait was small, and people know everybody. And uh, and even the bad stuff that happened to us isn't like city life bad stuff. You know, it's not like thug life. And um, so all of a sudden, I was in the middle. I was in these situations that I would never normally be in. In some ways, that I'm grateful for that experience because now. I'm, I'm really comfortable in all walks of life today, right? So if I go to help somebody, I can identify with their street life where I didn't before. Yeah. You know, I understand what, what it takes to navigate inside that world. But it is interesting that that's where I ended up. And it just it just kind of happens. Like, like I said, water finds still level. You just kind of trickle down. And, um, but at the very end, that that man prayed for me. And hugged me, and it worked. That's incredible. Another God thing. You would not see that normally. Oh, for sure. I've told that story a thousand times in inside um, detox and recovery and jail, right? Like inside with with other drug addicts. I've told that story a lot. Um, as I told my story, as I've shared my experience with them, and they, you, nobody that doesn't happen. I mean, I'm sure it's happened like you know once or twice over the course of human history but you know drug dealers are there to make the money they're they're a business owner i'm not i'm not trying to be controversial controversial it is what it is they it's it's not your best friend or your family member that's selling you this stuff you know he's there to make a profit and he he was paying his bills right i think i probably paid his mortgage every month you know <laughs> and you want to be real i'm not even joking you want to be real honest about it i mean i probably paid his mortgage so he just, it was God. Everything happens for a reason, and it was my time. And right. when I got to detox, I surrendered. I hit my knees, and I surrendered. And I decided that I didn't know, because like I said, I tried the kinder, gentler, softer, yuppie way of getting uh, clean, and it didn't work. And so I decided that I was going to do everything that they suggested of me, Um and so I went to AA meetings. I didn't want to do that because I said I we have family history of it. And I was really resentful of my family when they were. They would get clean, and then they would relapse. And they'd get clean again. When they would relapse, our lives would be chaos, and everybody would be so upset, and holidays would be ruined, people would be crying. We'd all be waiting around. And, and when they would be clean and sober, they would be judgmental. And telling everybody what how they should live their life, and I didn't want anything to do with that. So I got I, I was I was in a, like this lockdown facility, right? This like lockdown part of a lockdown facility, behavioral health hospital, and I was in there for detox. And so I um, I finally left because it was like the only way to leave the unit. That's how they get you. And this guy comes in, and he was really cool. The guy that volunteered to bring the meetings in. He's a really cool dude, and when he got, he worked the program, and he went through the steps. He made an amends, and that amends, he went and he had he confessed to a crime, and he did fifteen years in prison. Wow, that's how serious he was about his sobriety, and he stayed sober the entire time that he did that prison sentence. And he continued to help other prisoners while he inmates while he was there stay sober. And he had been out a few years by the time I'd seen him. He's sober like I don't know twenty something years by the time I saw. Him. So anyhow, so I went into that meeting, and um, and that was the story. I was expecting to meet a bunch of hypocrites because that's how I felt about my job and my experience, my family, and uh, I was blown away. And inside that meeting, I had a profound spiritual experience. I had two uncles that have died, and uh, you knew both of them, and um, I had this really profound spiritual experience because I was really resentful. I. I understand the Al-Anon side of addiction, and I also understand the drug addict side. Uh, so I, from the Al-Anon side, was really resentful 
with my family and the things that had happened and the chaos and stuff uh, that had taken hold and the way that it hurt everybody. And also to, at a really young age, I had to take on some additional responsibility that I should have never had to take on. So I had some anger. Um, and I said things to them when they were alive that I regretted. So I was sitting in this, uh, I was sitting in this room and I remembered, it's not that I, it's, I can't even just say that I remembered. I had this overwhelming, this presence, I had this presence of having Mark and Bo there, those my two uncles. And I cried. I sobbed. And I sobbed for all the things that I didn't say to them and how much I wished. It'll make me emotional now. How much I wished that they were there seeing me in the meeting because I knew that those two, even if they wouldn't have been able to get it together for themselves, those two would have done anything and everything they could to get me sober. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, uh, yeah, it was a profound experience. That was, and that's all that you need, you know, to get clean. People want to know, you know, there's just a very low percentage for people that recover from alcoholism, drug addiction. And I don't like to separate those two things, alcohol is a drug. So if you're an alcoholic, you're a drug addict. That's kind of a controversial, people don't like it when I say that, but I don't care. <laughs> it's a drug. And so it's a very low percentage. And it's because we try to think our way out of it and we want to be able to control it. We want to be better than, we want to be better than the disease. And the only answer is for you to fully surrender. And you have to give your life up to God. Whatever God, I don't care what God it is. I don't care if God for you is Mother Nature. But it needs to be something that's bigger than you. And you have to go through the spiritual transformation. And your life needs to change. And you become humbled. And you understand your place in the world. And the effect that you have on other people. And if that happens, you can recover. It's a, it's a terminal illness that we are able to put into remission. It's just really, really, really hard to do. I have a question for you on AA. Is that yeah. the same thing as 12-step? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I think this is the cleaner program, so I won't use, I won't tell, I won't say what I would normally say. <laughs> you, have to, you have to control your potty mouth, sorry. I know. <laughs> Anyways, I, I know that the 12-step program exists at our church in the form of CR, Celebrate That's Recovery. That's Celebrate so. Recovery. So yeah. it, it exists in different venues, right? Well, this is, so here's what's important to know about 12 Step, any 12 Step, even uh, Sex Addicts, Overeaters Anonymous, Narnon, Al-Anon, things. Those all start from AA. AA was the first book that was ever written with 12 Step. So it's the what I call the origin story. And that's the reason why I do all of my volunteer work through that. Um. Because I felt like when I got sober, I really what what I really wanted to know was where did this come from? Because otherwise, you know, like, am I joining a cult? Because I don't know how many people you know that are in recovery, but like when you're in recovery, I say the same idioms as everybody else. You know, it's like these all the we have all these cliches, and you know, even happy, joyous, and free is an idiom from the twelve steps. So we have all these like little cliches and stuff that we say. And I wanted to know before I committed my whole life <laughs> to this, what it was. So I did a bunch of research and um, Hills Anonymous is also a 12-step program. And that helped me a lot with understanding my health and how to get well. Um, but I, I have studied and spent a tremendous amount of time inside Alcoholics Anonymous because that is a the, probably the barest bones fellowship right like the because that's that's the book that was written but narcotics anonymous celebrate recovery all of those things anything with a 12 step and interestingly enough this is also a god thing i think they um so the the copyright on alcoholics anonymous alcoholics anonymous is the name of the book the first book that they wrote years ago this is like 20 alcoholic men in a group got together and they used to be part of this, uh, this religious chapter. Okay. They got together and they wrote this book and, and at the time they would just put drunks in asylums. They didn't have like a, there was no way to get them clean. And, uh, so they write this book and it was divinely inspired. If you, it's a great story. 
the, the history of Alcoholics Anonymous is fascinating. But one of the things that I think is a true testimony to God is they had trademarks the book, right? And they were making money on it. They were selling it. And like the alcoholics that they are, they forgot to renew it. And so now those 12 steps, it's, it's open to anybody. It's like the Star Spangled Banner. Nobody has a copyright on it. That's awesome. So, yeah. And That's, we all need it. Yeah. It's a way to live your life. It's an absolutely wonderful way to live your life. So I don't care if it's Celebrate Recovery or Narcotics Anonymous or Heroines Anonymous. I, the FNAs, I call them. That's a nice way to say it. There's like 30 of them. Gotcha. <laughs> so, yeah, so it doesn't matter which one they are, but they're a really good way to live your life. I want to ask you a question about now that the recovery's happened, it's been six years. Congratulations. Almost. Almost. No fronts. Oh, April 1st. April Fool's Day. <laughs> It'll be six years. No fronts in the drug game, Joe. You can't get credit. <laughs> <laughs> Tell everyone how you're helping in your community currently with the prison ladies and also I thought you are volunteering with kids and youth and then I want you to go from that story right into the story about fentanyl and how parents need to really be aware and of course anyone in, anyone needs to be aware of this what you're going to say buddy. Um, so today when I, when I first got clean I volunteered at an adolescent treatment facility down in Phoenix um, and that was that was really troubling they were 13 to 19 year old kids and uh you know, that was hard. I'm, re I'm really passionate about that, though. That's a good time. That's a really important time to speak really honestly to children about what drugs are and what they do to your life and your brain, and people need to not dance around it, right? There's a lot of kids that have a lot of... They're carrying around some really heavy burdens, right, for a 13-year-old. Um, so I did that for a year and a half until they tore that uh, facility down. And then when I moved up here, I, so I went, I had a group with them once a week and that was, it was, that was awesome. It was really hard, sad, but awesome. And then up here, I, when I moved, I just moved back to Washington state a year and a half ago and I, um, it's another God thing. There was a position open with the women's prison, a volunteer position. So we bring women's meetings in, um, three days a week there. And I'm there normally on Saturday mornings. I go for two hours. So it's two different groups. And uh, one of them is a general group. And the next one is a step study just to kind of teach them. And the main I, the idea, the reason why I am passionate about this, about giving it back, is what I said earlier. I was really lucky with my support system. I have a bunch of people that love me and that always believed in my potential. They never wrote me off. Even though, what, even though my behavior hurt them, they loved me through it. And there was an expectation that my life would be good. And some of the pain um, for, for some of the women, for most of the women uh, in, in these groups, up at the prison that they've gone through and their peer group, when they get out, uh, they're really set up for failure. They really are. I'm not making an excuse for them. But it's just the the reality. It's a real harsh reality. And so it's important to me. I'm passionate about showing them that there's hope. There's another way. And that they can set their mind to it. A big thing is getting themselves out. Like a lot of them have to get themselves away from their families, unfortunately. Um, to move out of the community, do these things. But there are resources available to them. And that's what we're there for. And, you know, we, we talk about we share our experience, strength, and hope, right? So... The fact is I go in there every week and I talk to them about my life. I talk to them about the things that are hard. I talk to them about the things that are good. I care about them. You, boundaries are really important if somebody's incarcerated. See, there's a lot of laws about what we can and can't do. Um, but it is really important that these women know that somebody genuinely respects them and is interested in their growth and cares about them, right? I believe that they can turn their life around. It's not just blowing smoke. I really believe it. And it is amazing, amazing, the transformation that I see there. Amazing, amazing, amazing. There's this girl. I just won't brag for just a minute. I won't use her name because it's going to, um, it, it doesn't want to violate her, her privacy. But 
she didn't have a college. She didn't have, hadn't even graduated from high school before she got there. She has now um, got her diploma. She got a scholarship to go to the University of Washington. She's going to be a librarian. And she qualified for like one of only two housing vouchers for next year. So this girl is going to be a library sciences major. She's going to go to the University of Washington, my alma mater. It's where all the smart people in Washington State go. Thank you very much. <laughs> I see that shirt. Anyway, so she's going to go there and she has her housing and everything paid for. What a tremendous turnaround. She was addicted to a very serious street drug up until this point. That is so incredible. Right. And it's awesome. So it's awesome. I, I'm so proud of her. They also have these great, like, entrepreneurship programs there. And um, anyway, it's just, it's really wonderful, you know. And we have to remember, it, sometimes it's easy to write criminals off. But as a nation, we incarcerate more people than anyone else in the world. And we have to remember that those people are coming back into our community. And a lot of us are really blessed with the opportunities that we have available to us. And we're really, really blessed that we're not judged of the sum of all of our bad decisions. You know? Yeah. I could be in prison easily. I'm really lucky I'm not in prison. I'm really lucky that I didn't take... Because, you know, I couldn't wait. I, I might have did, My disease was so bad, I would take those pills and then drive. Oh, wow. You know? How lucky am I that I didn't kill somebody? I couldn't wait. It was like, that dealer lived like 45 minutes from my house. I couldn't wait 45 minutes. Yeah, I put a lot of miles on my car. <laughs> wow, Kels. <laughs> it's like, so. That's incredible. I, I mean, let's get back to the part it. where you were lucky because you didn't die because the pills he was selling you didn't have fentanyl or something yeah, like that. So, at, yeah, fentanyl. So, um, as the years have gone on and the laws become more restrictive, which is good. I, we've over-regulated this a little bit too much. You know, um, doctors need to be trusted, honestly, and legislatures shouldn't be regulating our health care. Um, but we, uh, for chronic pain, uh, like unless you're dying, you know, these, these narcotics that were getting prescribed were intended for people that were dying, you know, that had end-stage cancer. Uh, yeah, I, you know, my back really hurts from time to time, but I'm not dying. We did over-prescribe, and we have an issue with that. And we also have an issue with those people. Um, I just went through this. I just had to, had to have surgery again. So you're going to have people that had chronic pain that were over-prescribed these medications that are going to have to go back on narcotics. And we need to have a realistic way to handle those people. And we need to be able to, to speak to them honestly and have them trust their doctors. But because that, that system has become regulated so much, there's this tremendous demand, right? Everybody's seen it. It's all over the news. Everyone knows there's an opiate crisis. There's a huge spike in heroin use over the last eight, seven or eight years. And it has everything. It's directly tied to uh, Purdue Pharmaceutical and, and the invention of Oxycontin. So as these drugs became less and less available, the way that they were being sold before is like these little old ladies would get prescribed it in these poor neighborhoods and then they'd sell their bottle pills, right, to a drug dealer. And then that drug dealer would disseminate it to people like me. And so uh, those little old ladies weren't able to go get their pills anymore. And if you went and got, do you remember like, there's this crazy, I mean, everybody lost their minds for a while. Ten years ago, you could have gone and got, went and got a root canal and got 30 Percocet. Like that, nobody just, people weren't paying attention. They just prescribed it. So it was everywhere. So you could buy pills almost everywhere. Well, they, as the as the regulations started to tighten up, what happened is people not just still had a problem, they had a bigger problem. So the demand was higher. And most of our uh, street drugs, most narcotics, so meth, heroin, right? <clears throat> Percocet, fake Xanax, those things, they come up through Mexico. And the cartel controls a big portion of that. Well, they learned that there's this uh, Chinese, the the there's some Chinese companies, and they're just playing a, a game, staying ahead of you know this chemistry game, right? Staying ahead of the curve, like changing one molecule here or there. But they can buy this really cheap fentanyl, and fentanyl is a really high powered opiate. For anybody that doesn't know what it is, it would kill any of us if we took it today. Any of us. See, none of us have a tolerance for it. And an opiate overdose just looks like your central nervous system shuts down and you just stop breathing. And you can reverse it 
this is an important. So anybody that's listening that has a loved one that is an opiate addict that is in in full blown addiction, you can reverse it with something cardinal called Narcan. And there's a standing order, I believe, with the entire state of Washington. There's a standing order over here where if you have somebody that you love and care about um, that is an opiate addict or that you're at a, at a risk for some reason, you work with uh, high school aged kids or, you know, you work inside a jail, law enforcement, healthcare, whatever, you can go to the pharmacy and pick up a prescription for Narcan. If you see somebody on the side of the street, you can stay. It's a nose spray. It's really easy to do. You put it up their nose. You can save somebody's life. It will reverse the effects of that opiate overdose. You can save someone's life. Wow. So, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, incredible. Yes. That's awesome. It is incredible. And, and anybody can use it. Anybody can find it and use it. And you're not going to kill somebody if you do. It's not a scary thing to use. You're going to keep. They will kick into a really horrible withdrawal. And they'll be really unhappy about it. But it's okay because you saved their life. You know, yeah. okay. So the as these these um, there was a need, right? Because we couldn't get the pills anymore, and so the cartel took over, and they could get this cheap um, fentanyl, and so they manufacture pills that look exactly like the pills that you get from the doctor. So if you were to go on uh, the internet and look at like WebMD or or whatever, and look at up a, a pill finder. You know, the stamps that are on our pills. If you were to look that up, it will look like oxycodone, 30 milligram, right? It would look exactly like it, but it's not. What it is, is some knockoff Mexico that they use. Um, they'll put a couple of little grains, granulars of uh, fentanyl in it. Well, those people aren't pharmacists. You know, they're not scientists even that are doing it. And people are ODing. We just lost a guy. Um, like I said, so I still work in Phoenix. My job is in Phoenix. And um, one of our, one of the kids that works there, it was on second shift. He OD'd. He OD'd and died in the porta potty because he was looking for a fix. He went and bought a bag of heroin. He thought it was just heroin, had fentanyl in it. And they went to find him a few hours later and he was dead. And the medical examiner told us that even if they would have gotten to him within two minutes, he was dead. Nobody intends to die in a porta potty. No. You know, now here's the other thing that is very scary today. So, so there's fentanyl because it's an, a derivative of, it's an opiate. So it, it's scary that that's in heroin or that that's a knockoff Percocet or Vicodin, right? That's, that's scary, but it's almost, uh, not logical, but you can like almost make sense of it. Like, okay, so there's fake pills and you shouldn't buy fake pills and yada, yada. But Fentanyl is now in almost every street drug. It's in meth. It's in cocaine. It's in a fake Xanax, which I want to talk with people metabolize Xanax differently. And adults need to know this for kids because you can, if you take a Xanax and you drink alcohol again, central nervous system shut down, you die in your sleep. Kids need to know that. doesn't matter if you've done it a hundred times. Then number 101, same dosage, same amount, and just die in your sleep. So some people take, if I took Xanax or if you took the Xanax, we'll go to sleep. Like you would have like the lullaby kind of sleep, like it's delightful, you know, like not, not a care in the world sleep. But some people take it and it amps them up. So they'll take it and they'll go party. So because of that, that those fake pills are on the market and a lot of those pills have fentanyl in them. So they've done, um, you know, the DEA and our, our, our government has done a bunch of testing across the country. This was, it was prevalent in Arizona starting a few years ago. That's why I'm grateful to God that I got sober when I did, because I would be dead today. No doubt about it, I'd be dead today. Um, but it has made its way up to Ohio. It's obviously up here in Washington, right? It's in Colorado. It's in Indiana. Doesn't matter where you live, the, the cartels run our illicit drug business in this country, and that is a cheap and effective um, ingredient for them to add to their products and so it's everywhere three to four no about this four or five years ago it had just started you just started to hear about it, it was only in a couple of drugs but now it's in everything it's in methamphetamine wow that's crazy and so what's scary about that the reason i feel really passionate about this about um, talking to people about it is there, for generations now, for our parents' generation and for our generation, and even for kids that are in their 30s now, 
they had the opportunity to experiment and they, and you really weren't going to make any you know just don't do any don't make any decisions that like you have to live with permanently right but like people experimented with different things and it didn't kill them and they they went through a wild period in their life and then they were able to write it off and grow up and be in and turn into responsible human beings the really scary thing about drugs today about street drugs today is there is not the same opportunity for experimentation and i i'm not saying i don't want to say that lightly like you know there should be like every kid deserves to experiment with drugs i didn't experiment with drugs like that either um but but it's a reality of what adolescent what the adolescent brain is that they don't foresee you know that their prefrontal cortex isn't completely developed and they don't understand the consequences of their choices and so as adults we need to explain to them that yes for you know for generations it's true we were able to do things we were able to experiment and take bigger risks than you can now and i'm sorry for that i'm not telling you you should do drugs but i'm sorry for that because this just isn't an option any longer it's deadly it's one time it is just one time right and what are the chances that they're going to get to, they're going to get Narcan inside those two minutes? Uh, nothing. At a frat party or a sorority party on, on campus, kids yeah. are being doled out pills all the time. Yes, and, they are. Yes, they and are. When you're already drunk yes, and you don't have a developed prefrontal cortex, your decision-making is nil. And so then you go, oh, a friend's saying, here, take this. It'll make you feel really good. You're like, yeah, I'll try that. And then everybody yeah. else is doing it. It must be safe. Mm-hmm. And then you just go lay down. And you're like maybe 20, 30 minutes later, you go lay down, you're a little tired. Mm-hmm. And you never wake up. Yeah. Or, God forbid, you get some pills, you hand them out to your friends. You're fine. And the next morning, your best friend doesn't wake up. It happens everywhere on college campuses and everywhere else on the streets, too. And it's just so sad. A kid died at WSU. I don't know all the details around it, but he he was found in his bed and had aspirated on his vomit. And they put him to bed thinking he was just passed out and drunk and ha-ha, right? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was not going to make it. And those boys would never want that for him, obviously. None of us want to live a life knowing that our friend died and uh, I don't know if pills were involved. So. Yeah, that could be just alcohol. That could be just so much alcohol um, <laughs> that they his body was trying to get to purge, to get rid of it, and he wasn't asleep on his side. You know, we have to, we have to speak to children um, really directly and not dance around the issue. We have to tell them things like, if your friend has had too much to drink, you need to have them sleep on their side. We're not condoning it. I don't condone, right? Like, look at I have a story. I'm like, I, can, I am a walking billboard for um, what not to do. So it's not like I'm telling people to do drugs, but I've talked to a, enough people and spent enough time doing this out in our community to know that the best way to get through to kids is not to dance around it. You know, we can't treat them like they don't know what's going on. It's you guys know this because of Adam working in the schools. Like it is really troubling how much children know, um, and we need to talk to them in a very practical, real way. We need to talk to them like adults, even though their brains aren't adult life, because they could make decisions that will affect the rest of their life or cut it short. And they also may be able to help a friend. Maybe the kids that we're talking to aren't the kids that are going to do the drugs. But maybe they have a friend that would consider it or, you know, just don't quite understand the risks. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for, we can't shelter our kids and not talk to them about scary things because they're going to experiment. I don't know what person who's probably listening to this call has not experimented with alcohol, experimented with marijuana, possibly, um, or just... I'm not saying recreational drugs, there's a high percentage of us listening might have experimented with, but alcohol for sure uh, yeah. is something that's so prevalent and easily available in our parents' well, cabins growing up. It's like, oh, yeah, let me try this. Uh, totally. I never wanted As children. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there 
there's just if there's accessibility, it might happen. And so we have to teach our kids that we can't bury our heads in the sand. Totally. Well, we have to start having real conversations about what legal marijuana is like too in this state, because the people have lost their minds in Washington State over legal marijuana. Like there is some marijuana available in stores that is like a psychedelic level. I'm not kidding. Like it takes you to another place. You know, Joe Rogan has this really funny joke about how it makes you think you can talk to dolphins. You know, like I think, like, like that is a drug. That's a drug. Yes. I understand it's a plant. It's cool. I'm not an anti-pot person. That's not what I'm saying. But we need to be really honest with kids. Like, you are fundamentally changing your outlook on the world. You are, like, your mind is gone. You have flipped it on its head. It's not just like it's some, you know, mild little, you know, set of him or something. I mean, it is, it's a serious drug. Yeah, so... It's not the marijuana from the 1960s. It's girl. It is not the marijuana from the 1990s when I was smoking it. <laughs> uh, I could like smoke pot and clean my house. I could like smoke pot and go do things. I could. There's no way. There's no way today. I don't even know what happens. I don't know how these people go through the world. <laughs> I'm serious. And there's like there's store. There are stores that, this is so funny, I think if people in Washington got used to it, because you guys went through the legalization all together, so you saw the shops, you know, sprout up when they had medical marijuana, and then when it became recreational, but for me to move back here, and it be everywhere, everywhere, and there are people there all the time, and I'm not judging it, you can smoke as much pot as you want, but let's not pretend that it is some lightweight deal. This is like somebody mainlining Everclear. I mean, it is so strong. Oh, wow. Uh, it's true. All right. Raquel, we're uh, at an hour and seven minutes already, so uh, I just want to wrap it up by saying thank you for sharing your heart and your true, authentic story to everyone because it's just... Thanks for asking. Yeah. Thank you for being willing because it's a story that needs to be told over and over again. I have covered addiction and recovery three times on this show and it's only my eighth show you're number eight and and i just meet incredible women who come through addiction and through into the recovery process or who have been parents on the other side of it and yeah how they've had to deal with that so there's a whole other side to the story right and you've had to be that person when you were young too young and having to deal with it the other side of the coin. Um, but I appreciate you being here tonight. I want to say to there, um, while I have the opportunity to that daybreak is a facility in Washington state in Vancouver and Spokane, and it treats children ages 13 to 19 who are going through addiction. And it is about to be shut down because of mismanagement of something at the Vancouver um, facility. And it withdrew federal funding, $3 million in federal funding with, was withdrawn if they don't save themselves by middle of next month by raising $500,000 we'll have a thousand youth in Washington state that don't get treated on a year to year basis. So yeah, that's unacceptable. It is a big problem. There's very few um, adolescent recovery centers and it is the time their brain, if we don't attack, if we don't help them to attack the disease when they're adolescents, they say, as you heal, say they got sober at 40, 50 years old, but they started using at 12, their brain stops developing at the age that they start using because think about it, you don't learn how, any coping skills. You don't actually learn how to run through life. That's a that's a tragedy. And thank you for bringing that up, Joe. We should put a link on the um, on this page and, and I'd like to share a link for people to raise money. Yeah. And to kick whoever the administrators were that created that problem. To get them fired. They're gone. They're gone. Good. Yeah, yeah. A, new, a new guy took over this year and has been doing great things. <laughs> Excuse me. We made local news and <laughs> the paper. But, yeah, they're, they're really trying hard. I have a lot of good friends that work for them. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's going to hurt a lot of people. It, it so will affect all help of it us. To not, a half a million dollars is manageable. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just so. keep talking about it. Let's pray about it. Yep. Asking for it. Right. Like, I can't think of anything more important, honestly. 
I know. I agree. I totally agree. So, um, well, thanks again, Kel. I'm going to call it a yeah. Thanks, Jojo. I love you. I love you, too. That was so good to see your smiling face. <laughs> you, too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.